0: Welcome. I'm thinking that our crowd may be affected by the marathon. What do you think? Do you have trouble getting here? Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Oh, you? Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here. I, I, I'm, I don't mean to be a nag. No, I'm not going to say anything about daily spiritual practice. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: Which means
0: I just said something about that. Yeah, um, but I, I, I do want to say something about our Tuesday night gathering that uh, Anne Shinki is leading on the Reclaiming Jesus document. This is the document, in, in addition to the uh, Charter for Compassion, that we are dialoguing about and bringing some of that in here to talk about, and I'm using this kind of a, a way to... Um, Guide me in my talks. There there have been um, about 30 or 40 people gathering on Tuesday night at 6.30. We meet for an hour in a kind of small group format to take one of the items in the Reclaiming Jesus document to talk about in small groups. That document you can find on the Ordinary Life website. And you can also find the entirety of the Charter of Compassion on the, on the website. So I want to say, I forgot to do this the last couple of Sundays, hello to the pajama people out there and to oh. the wine and cheese people. Three weeks ago after church, somebody walked out of church and said to me, I'm really grateful for the live streaming I watched you last week from Manila.
2: Wow.
0: wow. So what's the time difference? in Manila? Four hours? Quite a bit? Thirteen hours. They stayed up late or got up early or something. So remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So the title that uh, we came up with for this talk that we're doing today is Facing Spiritual Schizophrenia, How to Be Upset and Hopeful in Today's World. So as you know, uh, as I just said, we've been using this Reclaiming Jesus document as a grounding kind of for what we are saying in here. And one of the opening paragraphs or lines in that document is this. We are living through perilous and polarizing times as a nation. With a dangerous crisis of moral and political leadership of the highest levels of our government and in our churches, we believe that the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith are now at stake. So I have been saying that in light of the new In light of evolutionary cosmology, um, which is Holly's field of expertise and she'll be talking about, we need a new story because the old story has collapsed and we need a new story to guide us forward. And last week I said that the story needs to be from the perspective of what Um, Carl Sagan called The Blue Marble, this picture that was taken from um, Apollo 8. 8, Was it Apollo 8? So what that means, if we we create the story from the perspective of The Blue Marble is that it's going to be a story that is for everybody. It's not going to come from one tribe, from one mountaintop, from one valley, from one It's not going to be this Southern Baptist story, which has been my story that I grew up with. So um, so last week we ended up saying that two essential things that are needed for this new story are whole people and a stable social order. Because I said that whole persons cannot be created in a state of social chaos And a coherent social order cannot be constructed by dysfunctional individuals. Okay. So I am today wanting to amplify on those with Holly's help. And the difficulty in creating the story, um, and boy, did I get my face rubbed in that yesterday afternoon.
1: Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Because I went to see Just Mm -hmm. Mercy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, you made me do that. I did. He told me
1: it was my fault that he felt the way he felt yesterday. Uh. I take full responsibility for your emotions, Bill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think she's being sarcastic? No. (laughs) Um, The new story is hard to create because of uh, the story that we are currently in is being maintained by people in places of privilege and power and usually these are um, white guys. While working on this, I ran across a um, a line by Daniel Dennett who is a um, biologist who is very interested in evolutionary biology and um, Daniel Dennett says there is simply no way there is simply no polite way oh huh? i got to go backwards go backwards <gasps> <a way>. there. <laughs> there is no simply no polite way to tell people that they have dedicated their lives to an illusion and if you are living out of the story that was created prior to what we now know about the blue marble and evolutionary cosmology, you are living out of an illusion. And there's no, th- there may be a polite way to tell <laughs> people that, but there's no easy way. Not a polite way? I'll read up on Miss Manners and see. Yeah. What right. she says about that. Yeah. So we want to be upset about what's appropriate to be upset about, but we also end with today on a note of hope. How can we live uh, hopefully in, in in these times? Um, Holly thinks that being um, upset can lead to hope. I do. And I'm also uh, wanting to continue to build on Jim Wallace's line about don't go right, don't go left, go deep. And as you go deeper and deeper uh, into seeing what is, like watching the film Just Mercy, you're going to get upset. But also, you'll get signs of hope.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's me. That's
1: you. So when there's a kind of binary problem with maybe going deep is we can sometimes focus too much on our own personal depth, go inward, and which can lead to narcissism and a kind of myopic vision, a single-mindedness about ourself. And, of course, the danger in going too deep in the outer world is that we can lose the focus on the self and become... Um, too enmeshed in the outer world and lead to codependence. So in a sense, kind of holding this balance of personal introspection as well as external world introspection is this tension of opposites, holding both in the same hand and doing both at the same time this idea that I have, it's not original with me, but it's also a Jungian idea, is that holding the tension of opposites is what leads to wholeness, individuation, and whole people. The example that um, I wanna use from the the movie Just Mercy, which also explains why I'm out of dress code, which I've gotten commentary on from no fewer than three people, um, (laughs) is uh, from Brian Stevenson's work he, the movie Just Mercy is about his life. It's not a documentary, but it is a truthful drama about his life and the work that he's done. There's a piece in the movie where Brian Stevenson, who's a, a lawyer who is anti-death penalty, who is working in Alabama with people on death row, and both trying to remove the death penalty sentence, but also there is a 10% wrong Wrongful conviction of people on death row. 10% wrongful conviction. It's actually slightly higher than that because it's one in nine people are wrongfully convicted and placed on death row. So he's working to challenge that model. And one of the parts of the movie In Just Mercy was he has a confrontation with the DA, the district attorney, who is, uh, they're about the same age, a white guy, and he goes to him and he says you the, what you your unwillingness to reopen this case is terrifying people and the DA says well i'm my job is to protect people to make them feel safe and i need to make my community feel safe Brian Stevenson's challenge to that is which community and who the DA seems to be talking about are the wealthy white folks who he wants to protect from the fear of this supposed murderer being let loose. And he says, you know, you've got a whole other aspect of the community who are poor black folks who are living in fear that they're going to be the next victim to make your community feel safer. So the challenge kind of, I think, is what awakens the DA, we see this moral moral change over in the, in the district attorney's life. But Brian Stevenson has spent his life in service of the underrepresented, in service of the ones who are, we, who are both the most feared by dominant society and also the most sacrificed for an illusion of safety. And he represents people who are really a product of a system that failed them and tries really hard to redeem them and to offer uh, support. I mean, the, what we see, and if you've read anything about Bryan Stevenson, Michael B. Jordan, who plays him in the movie, is so believable in the way he portrays him. Bryan Stevenson looks people in the eye who are convicted killers. Bryan Stevenson sees the humanity in people. And it's not to excuse some of the behaviors, it's to say, i This is the shirt. I know that you are better than the worst thing you've done. I know that you are better than the worst thing you've done. And he, um, actually Josh and I, we went to the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, a little over a year ago, which is in Montgomery, Alabama. It's a museum and memorial to racial injustice in our country. And we shook the hand of a young man who was 17 when he was put on death row. And he was watching, he was standing in the background watching a video as people were watching him from the video talk about his experience as a young man in prison. And he was, he was wrongfully convicted. And he, his sentence was overturned and he was released. And he was standing behind us as we were watching this. We turned around and we were like, is that, is that you? And, and he shook our hand. And it was, I mean, it's a powerful moment to realize you're you're seeing him in the vi- film behind bars and behind us as a free man watching himself behind bars. So in that very moment, he's holding his own duality, his own tension of opposites.
0: Did you see the series that was yeah. on uh, called When They See Us?
1: Yeah. we Well, we watched, yeah.
0: So that's on Netflix, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. You can get it. And the mm-hmm. a three- or four-part program about... <laughs> the Conviction of the Central Park Five.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a powerful, powerful series.
0: And um, by the way, the woman who did that is the same woman who did the film Selma.
1: hmm And um, A Wrinkle in Time and others. And she's, others. Yes, yeah, Avril DuVernay. Yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah. Uh, Sherry and I went to see Selma on Martin Luther King Day, and we were the only Caucasians in the theater. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting experience. I'm sure. Yeah. But after that, after the when they see us was aired, there was another program in which Oprah Winfrey had bought, brought all five of the wrongfully convicted men mm-hmm. onto the stage, and the people who played them in the theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the film,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, she asked questions like, "What did you learn? What were your learning experiences?" Most moving moments during this time and the man who played one the the part of one of the lawyers uh in the film uh said um in response to I think Oprah Winfrey said so what did you learn about our justice system is it broken and needs repairing and he said no it's not broken it works perfectly it works exactly like it's supposed to yeah. and it advantages people of privilege and power, and disadvantages people who are poor and, who, who, who are poor and on the edge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: Every system has a shadow, right? Mm-hmm. This is very true. This um, this is the quote that's on, on my t-shirt, um, and I willingly was out of dress code <laughs> to wear it, but, um, and this is really the heart of Brian Stevenson's work. That is also an electric chair, which looks more like a Lego piece, like it's You know, your whole, it's a, this is an instrument of death, right? And the, it was put out of use in Alabama as late as 2002. And the bylaw states, but if a prisoner wishes to be in the electric chair, they can still choose it. And its nickname is Yellow Mama. I cannot even wrap my arms around that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, Yeah. I just can't even. Anyways, Brian Stevenson is a person who pushes against chaotic systems and is willing to see the individual within those chaotic systems.
0: So when you've heard me say before, when I came to Houston and uh, got involved in clinical training, my place of training was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine uh, who came from seminary, into this part of Texas, his placement for clinical training was in the walls in Huntsville. Mm -hmm. And so he invited me up one day to see where he worked and what he did. And he took me on a tour of the prison in Huntsville. And old Sparky was still in use. That's Mm -hmm. what our electric chair is called. And uh, in in the room next to where the old Sparky is... There was a a, like two boards that went uh, from the floor to the ceiling, and then there was a board on it with a meter and a rheostat and a switch. And then typewritten and and taped with Scotch tape, a little piece of typewritten paper that had the instructions for execution written on the piece of paper. And it was so many volts at 60 minutes, sixty seconds, so many volts at 90 seconds, mm-hmm. so many volts at 60. A real-life
1: Stanley Milgram experiment.
0: Yeah, it usually takes about three of those to dispatch mm-hmm. somebody. It's just a horrible, horrible the, thing. The
1: thing that, this doesn't give anything away, but this thing that really struck me, I shared this with you about the movie Just Mercy, was there was a scene... Or just before putting someone to death, the executioner is tenderly shaving the face of the man he's about to execute, holding his face and shaving it. And 10 minutes later, they execute him. I mean, it's just, again, this like dichotomy of hum- human behavior. We can be both tender and brutal in the same moment.
0: Well, speaking of death... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, i have a I, good role today. I, I have told you that that uh, I have this app on my phone called We Croak, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. Some of you got it. One of you got it and then told me that your staff had had took it off your phone because it kept you so upset or something. I don't think that person is here now. But at, at, at random times during the day, your phone will vibrate and it says, "Remember, you're gonna die." Now, the guy who invented this app got the idea from Bataan, where people are reminded every day, five times a day, that they're going to die. And he said, they're the happiest people on the planet. You're going to die. <clears throat> so when you look at your phone, it says, remember, you're going to die. And then a quote comes up. I thought I'd share some of them with you. A new ignorance is on the horizon. An ignorance born not of lack of knowledge, but of too much knowledge, too much data, too many theories, too little time. Another one, insofar as one denies what is, one is possessed by what is not. The compulsions, the fantasies, the terror that flock to fill the void. Um, that's by Ursula Le Guin. She's a fiction writer, quite well-regarded, and she has other other great lines. Uh, When you light a candle, you also cast a shadow. It's good to have an end to journey toward, but it's the journey that matters in the end. That's one of your favorite lines. To oppose something is to maintain it. I I love this one uh, by Sharon Salzberg. (laughs) <laughs> Meditation, have I mentioned?
2: Yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> Meditation is the ultimate mobile device. You can do it anywhere, anytime, unobtrusively. And then there is the quote that we use um, to book in this talk. So. so one of the watershed moments in our shared life together was um, 9-11. And... Um, We can look back now and see that as a country, we made some bad decisions after 9 11 that we're still paying for. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the decisions that I made after 9 11 was to go after fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And that involved my teaching a lot about how the Bible came to be written, what the Bible actually says. Who Jesus was as a historical character, what Jesus more or less likely said, mm-hmm. and I, I, I consider those kind of all important first half of life religious issues to deal with.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You have to know that foundation in order to to go forward, and and during that time, somebody asked me in class or after class, uh, "When are you going to stop debunking the Bible?" And I can certainly understand how one could think that that was what I was doing, but that was not my intention, nor is it my intention now, to debunk the old story. The old story served its purpose; it was useful. When, when, and I'm going to return to this a little bit next week. When, when the uh, evolution, evolutionary thing happened that I call the evolution of the religion of rightness that gave rise to the Old Testament prophets and gave rise to Buddhism and gave rise to don't do, and do to somebody what you would not want done to yourself. Those were very useful things in, in the society, in the global society. We need to act with more compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and it would not hurt for us to go forward by returning to some of that. It's a paradox for you we we need to, we need to be able to do that but it also that religion of rightness created those things that I've talked about a number of times in here cosmological dualism which is no longer useful and uh, a focus on individual salvation mm-hmm. what do we what do we need saving from <laughs> you can think about that
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so um I'm through. Yeah.
1: So we've talked a number of times about the Reclaiming Jesus document, and one of the phrases I was rereading it this last week, and one of the phrases that stuck out to me was, We believe we are one body. In Christ there is to be no oppression based on race, gender, identity, or class. The body of Christ, where those great human divisions are to be overcome, is meant to be an example for the rest of society. When we fail to overcome these oppressive obstacles and even perpetuate them, we have failed in our vocation to the world to proclaim and live the reconciling gospel of Christ. So it leads me to then question, what does that mean to create whole individuals? This It requires that we lean into a kind of another paradox, a singularity, that we are individual beings within the singularity of a shared community. So this idea of autonomy and embeddedness, which we'll get into later, but what, what that means is that we, we, what would it take for us to see this community and the broader community in the broader world as a single thing that we are all part of? I've used before in here the example of the body. The heart and the lungs do two, perform two different functions in the body but they cannot do their own function without the other. They cannot do what they are meant to do without the other. So I keep asking, what does this mean again to be one body? How do we hold this? And I think we have to realize that we are all interconnected, that a healthy kind of interdependence is the goal. But I want to know from you what you think kind of one body means. What What does that mean to you? of interconnectedness that mean um, from that document to say we are one body?
0: Well, I can answer that on, on a lot of different levels. If you take it, if you use Christian language, mm-hmm. metaphorical Christian language, um, it's very clear both in the, the teachings of Jesus and in the church's first theologian, Paul, that there was an understanding of the body mm-hmm. of Christ, the one body of Christ, and that everybody was part of that one body. We're not different parts. And and as Paul would say, the hand can't say to the head, I have no need of thee, right. because we can't we can't be fragmented and, and still work. But that is, of course, what our culture strives for, mm-hmm. separateness and fragmentation, Absolutely. withdrawal and numbness. Those are things that, that really mark us. From using a uh, a psychological language, um, and I got this from uh, Robert Johnson, as a matter of fact, it used to to have a tagline that I showed in the announcement slides all the time about what we were about, what Robert Johnson called a journey into wholeness. Mm -hmm. And um, I've said before, so I don't want to say it again, I do want to say it again, Uh, Robert Johnson's analytic trainer was Carl Jung. My analytic trainer, teacher was Robert Johnson, so I'm in apostolic succession.
1: That's right.
0: The gospel uh, according
1: to Bill Curry. The
0: gospel according to Carl Jung. (laughs) And what what Robert talked about all the time was that what we are on is a journey into wholeness. Mm -hmm. When you have a dream and you dream of yourself in some sort of vehicle, usually not a plane or a boat, and, and you're on a, a journey somewhere. That dream is symbolic of where you are on this journey from ego into self, from mm-hmm. the journey into into that, that wholeness, which hopefully, thankfully, is one we never complete. Right. That we keep, We have the opportunity to keep growing, which is, I think, it, once you settle the survival Issues is why we're here.
2: Yeah,
0: is to continue to grow in the various ways that are possible for us, in freedom and love, um, in in inclusivity, uh, all the way to the grave.
2: Right,
0: you're gonna die. Yeah, we croak. And keep that keep that uh, happily in mind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, One of the ways that the medical system and as well as the psychological system uses to understand causes of illness or causes of mental illness is called the biopsychosocial model. What that means in simple language is they look for the biological roots of disease, the psychological roots of um, lack of well-being, and the social or sociological roots and trying to understand the whole individual with those three things in mind. One, one of the ideas I've been working with lately is that I, I think that model is limited, actually, because it keeps the focus on the individual. And the one of the phrases that I really like from Brian Swim is the idea that we are both autonomous and embedded. We are both completely individual and completely embedded in and connected to community. So I've been toying with this model of, can we learn to see the individual within both an ecosystem, so an ecological system, as well as a cosmological system? And there's a kind of permeable membrane, if you will, between all of those, between the individual, the larger ecosystem, and the larger cosmological system. So what can we understand about individual well-being inside of that embedded, embedded system. And the Reclaiming Jesus statement, from what I just read, goes on to say, we believe we are one body, therefore we reject misogyny, the mistreatment, abuse, and assault of women. So in a sense, even though they're directly talking about a culture that has been misogynistic and exclusive of women, there, I believe it's also a call to look in our own selves. How are we cut off from the balance of masculine and feminine. And I think, I don't mean male, female, I mean masculine and feminine. There are masculine traits like leadership, autonomy, independence, um, individuality, and there are feminine traits like nurturing, compassion, care. All of us have both. So to me, if I think about this statement of the Reclaiming Jesus document, metaphorically I'm going, how is my own being disconnected? Where am I out of balance between the, the masculine and the feminine in addition to our entire system? I'm only a product of the system I grew up in. We all are. So most likely we're out of balance with those two parts of ourselves. That The icon that you like so much is part of the reason you like it is because of it, that sort of wild, settled, masculine, feminine mm-hmm. face of Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and. Uh, another question for you is: how, What do you think this, um, this can mean? The, the Reclaiming Jesus docu- document can mean to non-Christians. How can we understand that? For
0: well, they have water. to accept Jesus as their personal oh. Savior. Be <laughs> washed.
1: We're going to fill this with holy water after, and you all can come up and get saved. Be
0: washed in the blood yeah. of the Lamb.
1: <laughs>
0: come to the foot of the cross. Approach the throne of grace. And give us your money.
1: Because uh, Bill wants a jet.
0: <laughs> I'm not bringing that up ever uh. again. <laughs> not bringing that up ever again. So those of you who read Richard Rohr, did you read this morning?
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. So that's, a, that's one way to kind of start to answer this question about what does the Reclaiming Jesus document mean for people who are not Christian? Well, if you look at the document carefully, you can lift the religious language away from it and get the moral tenor of it, that it's about acceptance, inclusion, um, no misogyny, Mm -hmm. no racism, that sort of thing. And those are values that transcend any religious language, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the religious language is valuable, and and we can talk about that. What Rohr says this morning, and one of the reasons that I have gotten so deeply involved in uh, Buddhist Buddhism, Buddhist study, Buddhist practice, is because up until mm, the time that Thomas Merton began to uh, become well known among folks like you, There was nothing in popular Christianity about contemplation or meditation or any of that because the emphasis was all on believing Jesus as your personal Savior. You had to believe the right things, baptism by whatever. All institutions in our culture, the church, the government, although sadly the government is in front of the church about so much. But just think think of this. We have this struggle going on in the Methodist church, goes on in other churches as well, that we want to get to a position of practicing full inclusion. Now, think about that. Two weeks ago, I talked in here about the importance of language. Remember? You do. Say yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You do remember. <laughs> Why in the world would we qualify the word inclusion? Why does it have to be full inclusion? Why can't it be just inclusion? hmm but oh, we don't we don't stop there. We also attach the word affirming to inclusion. We include and affirm. How can't we just include everybody? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Jesus taught? So we go forward. I mean, we we go backward to that that sort of thing. And I think we can use the models of Jesus, the models of Buddhist teaching, um, and and the, they're valuable for everyone. Yeah. That's what I think about about that. I think that that's one of the reasons that I wanted to couple the Reclaiming Jesus document with the Charter for Compassion document. Because the Charter for Compassion is without religious language. Mm -hmm. But it is full of compassionate language, loving language, language of integrity, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is regardless of what religion You choose to practice. It's really, really helpful to know how to answer the question, what is your purpose in life?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Why are you here on this planet? What will, when you croak, right before that happens, needs to happen for you to be able to look back and be able to complete that act of dying with a sense that you've lived well mm-hmm. right you can die all right mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need that purpose to live by and, and and also some convictions to live by.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: what matters most? We were talking the other day, Holly and I, in light of of the document, in light of our culture, uh, in light of reading Brian Williamson's book, in light of seeing that movie, we could spend the next year Mm -hmm. or more talking about issues of racial justice
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and not deplete the subject. But I'm afraid that people would get put off by it. You
1: know what they say about heartbreak, when your heart gets broken, it takes as long to mend it as it did Break it to, you know so if you're in a three-year relationship, three years later, you might have some hope for heart. So it's going to take us maybe 200 years to unpack racial injustice in this. Well, we've got to live for quite a long time here.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it, I, I want to I wanna look at the D.A in that movie. Uh, is it who I'm talking about? the district attorney,
2: yeah.
0: I want to be able to look at him with compassion. Sure. Because he yeah. knew, he knew that that man was innocent.
1: Absolutely. And and the fear of overturning a sentence.
0: The pushback that the, he would get the from the community. The idea of the lack of safety. Right.
1: Was enough to compel him towards a mistruth, a lie. Right. Yeah. So, so
0: people need, they they need, purpose, we need purposes to live for, and we need convictions to live by. Mm-hmm. And we need resources to live from. Right. And um, I draw those resources from Christian ritual, Christian mysticism, Christian myth, the stories that uh, enrich uh, our tradition. Um, you know, Jesus told some stories that we're still scratching our heads about. Mm-hmm. And coming back to again and again and again, and oh man, I didn't see that. I didn't know that you could get that out of the story of the Good Samaritan or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's, it feels like the supply of, of richness is just never-ending, mm-hmm. but you don't have to be a Christian to get clear about purpose, conviction, and resource.
2: Right. You
0: can be a Buddhist, you can be an atheist, you can be whatever you want to be.
2: Yeah.
1: And The idea of, of wholeness is not a new one. This is, it's, it's an ancient, ancient idea this idea that, we, that whole beings can come out of ritual, out of tradition, out of even belief systems, but our belief systems are only as good as the individuals in it. So if the individuals are seeking wholeness, this is an ancient symbol of, called the Ouroboros. It's a, sna- a snail, a snake eating its tail, shortened to snail. <laughs> and, and, and the, the, the characters in, in the middle of it read, the all is one. And it's really about this ongoing cycle of life, birth, death, and continuation of that. That, that, is, a, that is wholeness, this, this embracing of the continuation. And I love um, thinking about how this shows up in ancient texts and Plato's Symposium. Some of you might be familiar with it. I don't need to go on about it. But they're debating what love is. What, what is eros? What does that mean? And Aristophanes, one of the people in the, and remind you, in Plato's symposium, it only included men, Uh, it was only men talking about what love was. (laughs) There were no women in the room, so this is, again, tainted by just knowing that. (laughs) But Aristophanes also shares his opinion about what wholeness is, what love is, by describing wholeness. And he uses a myth, which I'll read. Once upon a time, there were three kinds of human beings. Male descended from the sun, female descended from the earth, and androgynous, with both male and female elements, descended from the moon. Each human being was completely round, with four arms and four legs, two identical faces on opposite sides of the head, with four ears and all else to match. They walked forwards and backwards and ran by turning cartwheels on their eight limbs, moving in circles like their parents and the planet. As they were powerful and unruly and threatening to scale the heavens, Zeus devised to cut them into two like a sorb apple which is halved for pickling, and even threatened to cut them into two again so that they might hop on one leg. Apollo then turned their heads to make them face toward their wound, pulled their skin around to cover up the wound, and tie it together at the navel like a purse. He made sure to leave a few wrinkles on what became known as the abdomen so that they might be reminded of their punishment. After that, human beings longed for their other half so much that they searched for it all over. When they found it, they wrapped themselves around it very tightly and did not let go. As a result, they started dying from self-neglect. Zeus took pity on the poor creatures and moved their genitals to the front so that those who were previously androgynous could procreate, and those who were previously male could obtain satisfaction and move on to higher things." (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) It's really all about sex. Um, So, this is is the origin of our desire for other human beings. I'm I'm not intending for this to be a pro-heterosexuality metaphor, but a a pro-wholeness metaphor. Right? the wholeness of being, the wholeness of seeking our opposite and of holding our opposite in tension with our shadow in tension with our light, our masculine in, in tension with our feminine. And um, you know, Hephaestus mel- melded us together so that our souls could once again be one and we could share a common fate. And I, th- I think in so many cosmologies, including the Christian cosmology, there is a kind of wholeness between masculine and feminine. And the obvious shape of that is the circle. Jung worked a lot with the mandala, which was the dreamer's uh, seeking of wholeness, is how I've read it. And Aristophanes paints eros, or love, as perfect wholeness. So I I think, I don't don't know, I I love that idea that love can bring us to wholeness Mm -hmm. also.
0: The great symbolism in Buddhism about wholeness is a sand painting
1: hmm also well, a kind of mandala. It is or, a
0: mandala. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And they, uh, uh, they do, um, maybe I'll bring that next Sunday and show the process of creating a sand painting. They're very elaborate, very mm-hmm. very beautiful.
1: Did you ever go to the Menil when they were here mm-hmm. to observe it? hmm
2: mm-hmm. yeah. I
1: took my three boys, and I was just praying that they wouldn't jump all over the, that they wouldn't go mm-hmm. and scatter the sands. The Buddhists probably would have laughed and been like, that's what we do. Well, the that's what they do.
0: That's what they do as soon as the mandala is, is um, uh, created as yeah. a symbol of wholeness in the universe and, and all that sort of stuff. They just sh- yeah. sweep it away.
1: Because it's Cause also a symbol of non-attachment. Death. The process of being. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's a beautiful process. Yeah. yeah. Grain by grain yeah. by grain. It takes a long yeah. time and patience yeah. to do that. I did it yesterday. That was my <laughs> spiritual practice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna limp walking away from here today because <laughs> you're pulling my leg so much about this stuff. Mm. Yeah. So um, we were gonna talk a little bit about uh, a phrase that I have started using: uh, white male folk religion.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Which, uh, and I blame uh, Richard Rohr for this. Um, because it's not been a, this not been necessarily a a um I don't know what the word is you know when somebody kind of pulls the curtain back and you see there's no wizard
2: hmm. oh
0: man things that you lived with that you thought okay this is helpful or whatever So, Richard Rohr had in one of his meditations some time ago a reference to um, a book by a man named Jonathan Walton. Jonathan Walton is an African American man who has a graduate degree from Columbia University, and he wrote this book that Rohr uh, suggested called um, 12 Lives That Hold America Captive. I am not recommending the book, okay? I want to be clear with you, and this is not a trick. This is not one of those Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer things, uh, so don't think I'm pulling some reverse psychology on you. (laughs) This book got way too much Jesus in it for most of you, and way too much Bible quoting. But um, Jonathan Walton uh, has written this book about these 12 lives that hold America captive. And in it, and, and, and an example of uh, of lives uh, lies are. Um, well, first of all, let me let, let me let me read to you a quote by Eberhard Arnold. You know who the Bruderhof community is? Is that name familiar? That familiar with any of you? Uh, the Bruderhof community was founded by a, a German man named Eberhard Arnold, and it is the kind of a, a precursor of our new monasticism in this country. So, if you can imagine a Shane Claiborne who was born in about 1900 and created a community about then. you know, what, you know the, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to read you a quote from from him, written in 1920. Isn't the great world organization which names itself after Christ serving a God other than the God whom Jesus confessed? A God of a totally different order? Hasn't the institutional church sided with wealth and protected it? Sanctified mammon, christened warships, and blessed soldiers going to war? Isn't the Christian state the most ungodly institution that ever existed? Aren't the state and the organized church, which protect privilege and wealth, diametrically opposed to the coming order of God? That's what in 1920.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's hard for the church to hear that. <clears throat> and it's hard for us to hear some of the lies, the, the, what, what um, he names as lies in these books. But he, here's some of them. America is a Christian nation. All men are created equal. We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. And these and other ideas really break down when you look at them in the light of hard realities. And if you feel some resistance to any of these lies that hold us captive, then go read Walton's book or part of it because he is telling it from the perspective of a black person who has been on the margins and at the bottom and those people who experience this country from that perspective experience it differently than most of us right so i grew he uses this phrase in the book american white folk religion
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's certainly what i grew up with american male Male, white folk religion, because in the church where I grew up, they, there were no women leadership, mm-hmm. and I think maybe that's still true for most Southern Baptists. They no, no women, and there's a great struggle in the church for to have women ordained as as uh, ministers.
2: Yeah.
0: Or have divorced people.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So you know it never even dawned on me I and mean, this is so embarrassing to say it never dawned on me that not only was my religion white male american folk religion the religion was shaped by people who wrote the, the declaration of independence which did not include women right it did not consider Slaves, humans—that's mm-hmm. our. Those are our founding documents, mm-hmm. and we've had to kind of reinterpret them and reinterpret them. But that shaped what we thought about religion and about God and about each other and about other others. And it. What I, what I was going to say—it never even dawned on me that the. Um, parochial nature, the restrictive nature of the denomination that birthed me that I grew up in mm-hmm. was still part of when I came to Houston in 1965. It was called the Southern Baptist Church.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The Southern. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get much parochial than right. that. <laughs> yeah. And that really, that church gave me as you said, it's the story that that shaped me right. that I've had to struggle against and deal with uh, all all of my life
1: and that. that's where maybe this idea of being upset leads to hope hmm. that when we can hold again the tension of opposites, we are in the act of hoping mm-hmm. and this you know this has been um, a rough week to address <laughs> broken systems if you're a baseball fan, which All of you now know I am, Um, and I'm sad and heartbroken about my favorite team being the central piece of this kind of scandal, and it has made me think a lot about individuals within systems and broken systems creating individuals. And it still feels, I once compared uh, church to a baseball game right, in here, that there's, there's a lot of sitting and standing, there's a lot of shouting and singing, there's a lot of boring moments, um, that there, it, it still applies, because the church also has a shadow side, as does baseball, apparently. And I think, I remember once you saying in here, people get caught up, good people get caught up in systems mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. and How can otherwise decent people kind of get caught up in a mode of being that they might, outside of that system, not otherwise do? They might not otherwise behave in in that way. My my brain automatically goes towards wanting to understand things. I want to pick it apart. I want to understand it, Not, not to allow it or make it okay, but to understand. I don't want to excuse it. I want to understand it. And one of the things I, I am coming to is that, the, you know, the Astros brought so much joy to us in 2017. We were on the heels of Harvey. Many of us, you know, suffered from Harvey, and the joy of that celebration was, like, life-giving. And a moment for all of us to behave as a co- collective body, to be a collective body regardless of where we fell. On the, on the spectrum of po- politics and gender and all of that, we were drowning in blue and orange. <laughs> and we were proud. And we became baseball fans even if we didn't know what an out was or a single was or a, you know. <laughs> so I think, I think what I kind of am arriving at is that this system of competition, of win at all costs, of money, created, created this behavior. And it's not to say that the individuals aren't accountable to their own complicitness in that system, but the two go hand in hand. And that doesn't excuse it, it just helps me under, make it understandable because I'm not separate from being caught up in a system that has, you know, I, that has perpetuated certain behaviors. I have a, a friend who used to play ball, professional ball, and I asked him about it and he said, you know. When you're in that world, you think that's the only world that exists, and you do whatever Mm. you need to do to participate in that world, and you get lost in it.
0: Did you see that uh, the front page of the Chronicle today? I didn't. The lead story is about this.
1: Yay. (laughs) I've been...
0: I mean, really, and we have to stop in a minute, but it's really about uh, how that Harnishes now the whole experience.
1: Sure it does. But here's the thing. If I'm being non-dual about it, I both like want to punch my friend and also hug him. But I'm kidding. That's not non-dual. Um, but I, I, if I really am being non-dual about it, in the moment of 2017, the, the joy was real. Mm-hmm. It was real. It was fun. It was exciting. And it, and it came on the heels of devastation. And I must also hold that that bubble's burst. Right? So yeah. the joy was authentic, but so is the... The disappointment.
0: Things arise and they fall away.
1: Absolutely. We croak. We see the shadow. <laughs> and the theme of today is you'll die. <laughs> yeah. Have a great Sunday. I'm just kidding. So
0: no. uh, we have to stop because we're out of time and yeah. I've got to go. You don't uh, want
1: to say anything hopeful. Yeah, I do. Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carol, Carol, how many do we have today?
2: Kay. Okay.
0: Okay. 126? So there are 127 reasons to hope that you. Yeah.
1: Don't you think? I do.
2: Yeah.
0: So we have more to say, but we don't have time to say it. Um, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargoes so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.